His times in your hand are certain. Continue to sustain and bless him as you always have done through Christ. Finally, Lord, as we open our eyes once more and turn to your word, open our ears and our hearts to understand and to know the truths that we look at from Isaiah's prophecies. Amen. Okay, we're on, if you follow the study guide, we're on page 16. Otherwise, it's, we're reviewing chapter 42. We just finished looking at the, the last section there, 18 to 25. And I believe that's where we left off to kind of overview the whole chapter of Isaiah 42. Let's see if we can explain why the servants mentioned in chapter 42 really have to be fulfilled in two different servants. So we're going to see that coming up, this reference to the servant of the Lord. Why do we find here, as we look at chapter 42, that has to be fulfilled in two different types of servants? So it starts, the chapter starts, here is my servant. And then you get to the middle of the chapter, who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send. What makes them different, these two servants? Right, yeah, the first part of the chapter can only be fulfilled in Christ. So look at how he's described, right? My servant whom I uphold, my, put my spirit on him. He'll bring justice to the nations. He'll be a covenant, a light for the Gentiles. He's the, the perfect savior. Uh, that can only be fulfilled in Christ. Whereas, how do we know the second servant that's mentioned in this chapter is fulfilled in the people of Israel? Yeah. Right, sinful, blind, deaf, not delighting the Lord, not bringing his you know, spirit's work to the world. And yet, God in grace calls on them, rescues them with the servant, his son. And it even says in that second part, against the Lord we have sinned. You know, Isaiah joins in it that he's part of that people of Israel that sinned against the Lord. And it would be the sinless servant mentioned at the start that would rescue them. Okay, other review question there ahead is, there's a play on words here with blindness. So what is meant by the blind in chapter 42, verses 6 to 7, in chapter 42, 16? In verses 6 to 7 of this chapter, it says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the peoples, a light for the Gentiles. And here we get, to open eyes that are blind. And then also you jump to verse 16. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. What is meant by the blind there? People who don't know the truth. Unbelievers. Yeah. To open the eyes. It talks about the Gentiles, the unbelievers of the blind. So the unbelieving nations, they're blind. They don't have God's word. They're going to be led by God's word and opened. Okay, then who are the blind in verses 18 and 19 then? Israel. Israel, yep. So the first group are the, the people who need God to lead them. So by faith they can see. The second group are people who are blind because they have the word, but they've rejected it. So there's two types of blindness. There's the blindness of unbelief and the blindness of stubbornly turning aside from the word that's right in front of your face. So they're the cause for their own spiritual blindness. They rejected God. Even though they're led by him, they're still blind. 
So we, we kind of closed our study last time just examining how sad of a truth that is. He tried to guide them and direct them over and over, but they still would not listen, would not open their eyes. This chapter actually has a theme, that next discussion point, uh, wrapped around sound and sight as you go through chapter 42. Can you find at least four different places where sound is the focus and what's meant by each? Yeah, so there we get a poetic picture of sound being used. He will not cry out or raise his voice in the streets, verse 2. What does that mean? What's that poetry, what's that, that imagery of, well, I guess not imagery, but that auditory picture of sound, what's it conveying here? Well, makes me think more gentle. Christ is more gentle, he's not. Yep. So he's not going to shout out, he's a gentle servant, a humble servant. A, yeah. Good, yeah, I'd say gentle's probably what that not shouting out conveys to us. What's, a, what's another point where we see sound? Verse 11. Okay, verse 11. Let, let the wilderness and town raise their voices. Yeah, so I, you said praise, right? Yeah, raise their voices and let, the people, and let the people sing. Yeah, and verse 10 with it, right? So sing to the Lord. Verse 11, raise their voices. So there you got sound is being conveyed now, shouting praise to God. When's the next time we see sound in this chapter? Yeah, good. So actually the lack of sound, holding back, God's holding back, or if you, you have a prophecy of Isaiah being held back, for a long time I kept silent, but now I cry out, I gasp, I pant. What's the imagery or the picture of that sound picture there? Well, sometimes Dr. Vicky's just had enough of us. <laughs> right. <laughs> he just says, Kind of God's watching in patient silence, probably some frustration, nothing's being said, and then it's time to speak. God has to step in. Yeah. Good. And then there's one more, actually. It's almost the, the loudest cry. Look at the previous verse. So now we found all four times, or actually there's more than that, but mostly where sound is the focus. Verse 13. The Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior. He'll stir up his zeal. He will shout. He will raise the battle cry. So what, what is that auditory imagery burning out? Yeah, he's our champion that's fighting. So I just thought that'd be neat as we review this chapter, just to see how Isaiah is burning in sound to convey in the Messiah gentleness, to convey in, the, convey in the Messiah victory and conquering, to convey in the Messiah holding back, but then finally in frustration, I gotta do something now. And then also to convey in God's people a response of praise to shout to him. Okay, for what it's worth, I thought those themes were, were neat the way it just keeps on echoing, the sound pictures keep echoing. 
Um, one more review that I had was, look at 42 verse 24. It's near the end of this chapter. Who handed Jacob over to become loot and Israel to become plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways, they did not obey his laws. Use that to create a suitable title or theme for this chapter. So anybody got, got some suitable titles or themes that would fit this chapter based off of what we, what's summarized in verse 24? God's burning in anger. Sure. God's burning in anger. He handed them over. Other thoughts for titles? One I had was kind of tying with the rest of the theme, but that thought, sinners are blind and deaf to God's ways. Or bringing in the audio stuff, listen, you deaf, look, you blind. That would probably fit for this chapter. The Messiah will shout like a hero, the people will shout for joy, was another kind of hidden theme that stood out in the middle from all this not listening. Okay, that wraps up chapter 42. Any other thoughts on the chapter before we move on? Let's jump into our next chapter, chapter 43, and this section, just taking verses 1 through 13. I've titled it, The Lord Gathers His Chosen People as Witnesses. So, can you list any places that you'd never go? Maybe like dangerous neighborhoods, or a jungle, or a cave? What are, what are some places that you would never want to go? Downtown Phoenix. So you have, you have no plans to head to downtown Phoenix at, in the, the middle of the night. Those places where they got the graffiti and probably have a couple dealers that could hook you up with some substances. Not your favorite place that you want to go, right? Any other thoughts? Places you, you dread to go? Yeah. Me too. I, I would get claustrophobic when you start to feel things closing in around you. You know, if I know I can get out quickly, it's, it's okay, but when you start to get deeper and deeper and deeper, I wouldn't want to do that. You know, those people that went in that submarine and submerged, that, that would make me pretty anxious. Okay, God equips us to furiously tread in places we might not otherwise dare to walk. So here we're going to see him equipping, encouraging his people that they can go anywhere because uh, he's going to embolden them and be with them. So let's read verses 1 and 2. But now, this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. So can you list some of the comforting truths and promises given in these verses? He's redeemed us. Sure, I've redeemed you. I've, I've bought you back. Uh, that They didn't deserve to be with God. They deserved to pay a heavy price. But he purchased them. 
bought them back, not just from the surrounding nations that would conquer them, but he bought them back from all their, their ills, all their woes, all their enemies. Other comforts that stand out to you? He'll be with us. Yeah, his presence. And notice how that, that echoes. Isn't that comforting? So... Right. doesn't matter what your situation, whether it's water or fire, that's kind of what we call marismus, the, the two extremes, whether it's going to be drowning or it's going to be being burnt alive, and everything in between, I'm going to be with you, whether you walk or you pass, I'm with you, I will protect you. I wanted to kind of look at Bible history, just consider what you know about Bible history. What are some times that these promises were literally kept for Israel? Right, so when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. That didn't happen yet, but he's promising that's going to take place. Literally, that took place. So yes, this is, it's a poetic picture of what God's going to do for them, but that doesn't mean God can't also literally fulfill what he says too, right? And he literally kept those three men as they were in the fiery furnace. So there's a, an example of that taking place. The parting of the sea? Yeah, so we literally in the past had both when they passed through the Red Sea and when they crossed the Jordan, they walked on dry ground. So God literally kept that for them already. Um, I'm trying to think if that was kept in any time after Isaiah's time, but still, nothing's going to harm you. Other pictures here you see fulfilled? So definitely, yeah, the, the three men of the fiery furnace, the crossing the sea, um, maybe you could throw in the flood as well. Yeah. Explain why we can be certain these same comforts and promises apply to every believer. Right. We, we have the same need. You know, it's not like we can tread in better places without our God. How do you know that this is for us too, though? How do we know that we, and actually every single believer, has these same promises, not just the people of Israel. Well, it says so in other places in the Bible. Sure, got some examples. So the Bible does give these promises, they're repeated, not just for Israel, they're repeated for us as well, right? Doesn't Jesus tell us, I'll be with you always? Doesn't the writer to the Hebrews apply to the New Testament church, he will never forsake you, right? Well, then in the very first verse, he says, I am the one who created you. Right. He created us as well. So, so he's, he might be calling, you know, the, the person, or the or rather refers to the nation, Jacob and Israel, but aren't we also created by him? Aren't we also formed by him? And aren't we also redeemed by him? You know, the, the comforts that he's your creator and redeemer that doesn't just apply to Israel. That applies to everyone he's redeemed, everyone he's formed. And he says, you are mine. <clears throat> doesn't he also call us his own? So we, all these things that he bases his protection on, that he's our creator and our redeemer, and that he calls us his own people, that applies to every believer. And, yeah, much like Martha said is, and these very same types of protection and promises of his presence also are directly given to every believer.
But you can take these words and you can hear them as he says it to the church. I've created you, I've formed you. Don't fear, I've redeemed you. I've summoned you by name. He's put his name on us in baptism and we are his own. Yeah, and it's comforting when you look at earlier, um, look at uh, chapter 42, verse 25. Notice it says, he poured out on them his burning anger. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. And then, just two verses later, oh, by the way, the fires won't set you ablaze. Isn't that a comfort that even though there's times we'll face consequences, discipline for sin like Israel did there, and God in his anger can hand people over because he wants them to listen, he still says, it's not going to harm you, you who trust in the Lord. It will not destroy you. So just a big, strong contrast from what we just read. Yeah, each one of these statements applies to us. The violence of war, whatever, whatever we face. He is our creator, redeemer. He calls us by name. He takes ownership of us. He promises to send his angels to protect us, to watch over us, and remain with us wherever we go. All right, let's read on. Verse 3 and 4. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you. I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. We'll pause, pause there. So recall the, the social and political situation in ancient Israel at this time. You have Assyria, a brutal empire that was going after all the nations in the region. We still have, we still have records from the Assyrians because uh, the way that they were conquered, uh, Nineveh was just completely buried, and so we can read a lot of the, the tablets and the monolisks and the, the things that were left behind from their civilization. And you hear them boasting about what they did to the conquered nations and how they subdued them. And you hear records from the surrounding nations on how horrible it was. And Israel was part of that. Assyria, however, would be conquered by Babylon. So in 612 BC, just about um, 50 to 80 years after Isaiah's time, Nineveh is destroyed. Babylon, in turn, would be conquered by Cyrus II. He was called Cyrus the Great from Persia. That was 539 BC. So now we're talking almost 200 years down the road. In the end, when you look at these verses, he mentions Egypt and Cush. Egypt and Cush would be crushed. In effect, really serving as bait for Cyrus and his conquest, but not Israel. Cyrus would march across these places and he would want to take the wealth of Egypt, he would want to take the wealth of Cush, but he would decree Israel should be restored. So it's kind of neat when you look at this prophecy saying, I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Um, Seba is often understood as, as Yemen across the Gulf of the Red Sea. It's a place that's mentioned four times and uh, it's a people that are mentioned in the biblical text about three or four times. It's one of the several nations that God mentions here. He, he gives in exchange as a ransom for Israel. And if you look in chapter 45, Isaiah is going to mention they're a wealthy nation, along with Egypt and Ethiopia, which Cush sometimes is identified as part of Ethiopia too. And in fact, that's what the Greek Septuagint puts here, is Ethiopia. 
So these are wealthy nations, places where there was trade exchange and they had money, and God says, no, even though these are valuable nations, they're not worth you, Israel. You're what's valuable to me, and I'm going to give up and make them suffer for your sake. Okay. Can you explain why we still need the comfort of knowing God directs the affairs of every nation? Because we still live in scary times. Yeah. And we are actually, we're the Egypt and Cush of the day. We're the wealthy nation that everybody envies, right? But we still live in a world that is in turmoil, in uncertainty with political, you know, people have talk of, well, maybe World War III is around the corner. Maybe we'll get dragged into a war with China or Taiwan. Who knows? Now, there is no certainty. There is uncertainty in this world. But how much comfort isn't it to know God directs the affairs of the nations? And he can even take the wealthy nations of this world, push them aside and say, no, I want what's good for my plan, for my church, for those I've redeemed. Yet the main point here seems to be these were wealthy nations and God values poor Israel more than them. Because by this point, Israel already had given tribute and been ransacked by the Assyrians for a long time. They didn't have much wealth left, but they're still valuable. Based on what we just read in the closing of the previous chapter, can you evaluate how much Israel actually deserved goodness from God? Yeah. They not only lacked wealth that he should see anything that they're worth anything in this world's big stage, they didn't deserve him because they had rebelled. They deserved his wrath and anger. They deserved to be sold off. Right. Uh, someone want to read for us verse four and five. Uh, sorry, five through seven. Take the next section. This is going to sandwich what we read earlier. Judy, you got it. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, Give them up, and to the south, Do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Yeah, thanks. So God would gather his scattered people from all the nations. Some people might try to limit this and say, oh, he, he means to gather, you know, the people that are ethnic Israelites, and that, that's what he's referring to. And to an extent, that, that's a fulfillment that was true, that the Israelites that were in exile were brought back. But as you look at this, do you see here a picture that goes beyond simply bringing back scattered exiles? How is, this a, how is this a picture of the church? The way that God brought those scattered people from Israel back to Israel, how is that a picture of the church, the holy Christian church? Yeah, the, the church we, we speak of in those terms, right? We are gathered by God. 
Um, some people look at the, the term church even, which means called out, uh, but it was essentially church is from the Greek word for what became at that time to mean gathering, an assembly. We are assembled, gathered by God. Yep. Don't we, don't we gather together to praise and honor and thank him for all the things that he gives to us? Right, yeah, gathered by God, and here he says, for his glory. Who I created for my glory, I'm going to bring them together. So God promises to bring back the scattered remnant of believers here. And it really, it extends beyond Babylon. Look what it extends to. It says, from, what does it say, verse... Um, from afar, verse 6, from the ends of the earth. So this is extending beyond Babylon, but to all this world, God's going to gather his church. And we bear the same titles. He calls them here, he says, my sons, my daughters, from the ends of the earth. We are sons and daughters through faith. Not just by you know, the scattered ethnic Israelites, but those who by faith are children of God. Um, Abraham's descendants through faith. So we bear that same title of sons and daughters as God has gathered us. Uh, we are called by God's name. It says, everyone who is called by my name. We bear the name of Christ, and we are Christians who have been baptized in the name of our triune God. It also means that um, God chose us, and he made us for his glory. We didn't choose him, in other words. We were Christian because God sought us. We didn't do it. Right. Yeah, notice the, I will say to the north, do not give them up. I will say to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons and daughters. God's the ones initiating this gathering, right? I will bring your children. The, that is the children that God has made his own and calls his own because he says, everyone who's called by my name, so this is all-inclusive. This goes to the ends of the earth, and it includes everybody who bears God's name. Isaiah will expand on that, that you know, his calling and his gathering goes to the whole world. Yes, it's fulfilled initially, as we see him fulfilling his promises for the nation of Israel, but it's a picture of what he really promises ultimately through the Messiah, this gathering of all believers everywhere. We are baptized into him. We are heirs of the promise. We bear the name of God. And if you look at verse 7, Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed. That, that's more than just ownership. Doesn't it also imply that God has the power to do everything we need? If he's created and formed us, he's able to gather us. All right, let's, any questions up to that point? Comments? Everything tying together good so far? Let's go from verse 8 to 13 next. So a bit longer section to read. We'll see if we can tie this together. So now we're in the context of gathering. And now God's basically going to say, Hey, now that I've gathered you, you're gathered to be my witness on what I did for you. Verse 8. <clears throat> Lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together. All the peoples assemble. Which of their gods foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things. Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so others may hear and say, it is true. Notice God's employing this uh, rhetorical device where he's setting up the trial, right? Bring in your witnesses. 
So who's one of the parties that's brought into witness at the trial? He calls them deaf and blind. Israel. It's going to be Israel, but who do we see especially here in verse 8 and 9? Is led to give their testimony. Yeah. So here, when it says all nations who are deaf and blind and their gods, it's, he's basically saying, all right, world, bring out your gods. Let's see which of them can give testimony and say they foretold something. That's one side of the, the courtroom. Now we get the other witnesses. Verse 10. You are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor there will be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? So God's boasting, and who's supposed to give testimony that his boasting is true? His people. Uh, when God says, I'm the only one. Uh, verse 9, really, God calls, calls upon all others to give witness. You know, the spiritually blind, they, they can't point to any God who can foretell uh, as he has foretold. Uh, Jesus really opens up the same promises to his witnesses, doesn't he? When he said, here it says, you are my witnesses. You are my witnesses. What promises do the witnesses have? We're redeemed, we're created. He will be with us, he'll protect us. How would Israel serve as a witness for the Lord? So now talking about the nation Israel, how are they going to be a witness? Yeah, the remnant would realize, wait, God foretold this and it took place? How could they not speak of that and share it? In fact, that would happen. It's reported that when Cyrus did finally march into the city and the, the people that he liberated were there, there were some exiles that were there that were believers. And they, they came with their scriptures that they had from Isaiah. They showed it to Cyrus and he was, he was delighted to see that, that, oh, there are gods on my side. So they gave testimony before kings that, hey, God foretold this. We don't know if Cyrus actually took it to heart or believed it, but it was recorded for our sake that God foretold this, and it happened. And the nation of Israel got to praise him. Look what the Lord has done. He has done great things for us. He's restored us. And just think about in general, too, out of the whole world, they were the ones that God revealed his truth through his prophets. Uh, they had to be his witness because God didn't select any other nation to bear his word, right? They also bore his promises before the world. The people of Israel, they're the ones that bore the promises to point to the coming chosen one. They had all of God's past faithfulness, which he talks about here, to give them a starting point to proclaim his future promises. God has done this. God has promised this will come. 
Note the progression here as you look at 8 through 13. It's know, believe, understand. There's no other Savior. And then he says, you're my witness. Okay, look at verse 12 in particular here. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses that I am God. Why is that a great summary for God's plan for all? I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. Do you see a summary of God's plan of salvation in those words? Revealed, saved, proclaimed. Well, that's what Jesus did when he came. Sure. He saved. He saved. He proclaimed. And he sent his church to proclaim. And before Jesus came, the prophets revealed the coming of the Messiah. So isn't that really an outline of the salvation plan? I have revealed. Oh, by the way, I'm the God who's going to save you. I'm the God and I will send the one who will do all this. I will do all these things. And then he saved. He kept what he revealed. And now it's being proclaimed to the world. Isaiah's going to get to that too, that spread the word to the world. Let all people hear what the Lord has done. So yeah, he prophesied he'd send the Christ. He sent out messengers still to proclaim what Christ has done after he saved. And all believers do this in the New Testament until his return, we proclaim. Okay, um, let's review just verses 1 to 13 now of this chapter. So, here's a thought. What sort of witness protection program does God give his people? You're in his witness protection program. He promises to be with us. Yeah. You know, in the the typical, I guess, witness protection program, at least the way it's presented, is they give you an alias. They, They put you in a safe neighborhood with that alias. And you're supposed to have like a, a new identity card, a new job. And they just kind of send you, and you're supposed to disappear into the society. This witness protection program, the, the judge, the king, the commanding officer says, hey, you're going to be right at my side, and I'll be with you. So I'll take that for a witness protection program. You get to give witness while the one you're witnessing to is right there with you, never leaves you. Other things that describe this witness protection program? Protection. Protection, yeah. So whatever comes your way, I can handle it. So the, the best bodyguards, the best protective security system. Witness protection programs might have people with like, you know, alarm or maybe a van parked out front to kind of set the alert if someone discovers they're there. God assures protection for us. Nothing can harm us. In a a witness protection program, usually they hide you somewhere, but God wants just the opposite. Yeah. Believers. This isn't a, we're going to tuck you away, hide you witness protection. This is a, I'm going to protect you as you march down the the highways and the streets and you're going to proclaim to everyone. Yeah. Go out there and give witness. The courtroom, so to speak, where we give testimony is our lives in this world. Well, and he gives us the ultimate protection of heaven. He gives us something to, sure. to look forward to. to right. All. We didn't speak about that much, but when God talks about gathering, yes, he does that right now as he gathers all believers into the church. But think of the ultimate gathering. 
when God on the last day raises the dead and he gathers every believer from the ends of the earth. And he says, you're mine, I've redeemed you, not just redeemed you from slavery to sin, but I've redeemed you with your body for new life. So yeah, this, this witness protection program has the guarantee of being forever safe in his kingdom and being forever in his promised eternal home and paradise with him. So yeah, that's, that's a good reminder that God's ultimate gathering for his witnesses includes that everlasting redemption. So that should embolden us, right? As we serve as a witness today, we might think, oh, as I go out and share God's word, what if people you know, give me a hard time? What can they do, as Jesus says? How can they, how can they harm you when the Lord has given you life and the inheritance in heaven that can't perish, spoil, or fade. Or as a witness today, you might be fearful that uh, maybe you're going to face some ordeal. God says, I'm not going to let you face it alone. Or you wonder what the outcome will be. We know the outcome. God has spoken. Um, can you share how you've seen God gathering his church from various places around the world? So how do we see that taking place? In this chapter, God talks about, at least in this, this first half of the chapter, he says, I will bring them from the ends of the earth, from the north, from the west. Bring them. How do you see that taking place today? Anybody want to share your experiences with what you've heard or experienced in the mission fields? I think the one thing that stood out to me in recent years is our mission work in Vietnam. Okay. That they actually approached us. Right. So it's through the, the connection that was made with uh, one of our one of our pastors in our church, preaching, you know, in the, the Mon language, the people heard it. So we're, we're able to reach the, the Mon Vietnamese and who would have thought? But God says, I'm gathering them. Bring them. Don't hold them back. Even those who are behind this country that Christianity is not so readily available. I, w I want them too to be gathered, and they are. Uh, the work is being done today, as we speak. Other examples? We we have a couple in Ethiopia that he's uh, teaching in like a seminary with them, and sure. then they go back to their villages and. It's really been a wonderful experience. So your, your personal experience and connection reminds you that there are people there in, in Ethiopia being gathered. You know, here they're mentioned as you know, that, that place that God gives in their stead is a ransom, but there too, God says, this is one called by my name. Heard uh, Jerry mentioned briefly there, I think he said China. China there too, even though the government tried to eradicate any religious thought, God saying, nope. They're called by my name. Gather them from, I guess, you might say from the west, from the east. And you know, you don't have to look so far either, right? Um, just this last week, there was someone who doesn't have a church home, but then heard our, our radio broadcast on KMLG and called us and said, hey, I wonder if I can get a ride to church. So I need to check with someone here because... Our ride coordinator is not here today. He's, he's on a cruise, so Bill does, usually does the ride coordinating, but if someone can speak to me about helping her get a ride, we're looking for another person that heard our radio program, but she's got vision troubles, 
And actually, ironically, she's in the same building that, that Irma was in with vision trouble. So if someone lives in that neighborhood, there's someone that's being gathered. She wanted to be gathered with God's people and is seeking a ride where she can be built up here. It's taking place locally, too. Um, wherever, the, the, wherever the word's being taught, God is giving that message, I am the Lord, I am your Redeemer, your Savior, and the church is being gathered. I think the Marilyn, Craig and I picked Marilyn up, and I think she also came to our church through the Right, Sunday so morning. that's also someone that heard the, the radio broadcast. And, you know, the, it'll happen through people that show up as visitors, the internet, the radio, whatever it means, or just as God's people, because you're his witnesses in your daily life, give witness. Um, God's gospel is pointed to, Christ is glorified. And whether you shout it out or you just gently lead them to see their Savior, this is being fulfilled, uh, what God says that he will gather his church from afar. Uh, the non-Christian group, we can't pass this section without discussing this. Uh, the non-Christian group, Jehovah's Witness, they really derive their title from this chapter. You know, God says in here, you are my witnesses. So especially like verse 10, declares the Lord, uh, they would translate that. You are my witnesses, declares Jehovah. Um, Jehovah itself is really just a, a taking of the Hebrew letters and then the, the marginal footnote, the way you would pronounce Adonai and superimposing those vowels on top of the letters for Jehovah. Some translations and people will pronounce it Yahweh. Uh, we say Lord using the same scriptures that Jesus did, Kyrie, uh, for the translation as well. And he would have read Adonai there. Okay, but uh, they derive their title from this chapter. And yet, the Jehovah's Witness group, they, they reject the ecumenical creeds of the Christian church. So they reject the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. They, they wouldn't say that along with the rest of the, the church that bears God's name. And even though they bear God's name, what are some of their basic tenets? Can anyone explain that? That make them not a true witness. And actually, they. Yeah, if, if you ever meet a Jehovah's Witness, they definitely know their Bible. They've got eyes. They, they understand and read different verses and can piece the scriptures together and probably could put a lot of scripture out there that a lot of Christians couldn't and maybe even put some Christians to shame on how much they spend studying the Bible. And yet, they really fulfill verse 8. They have eyes but are blind. What makes them blind as they look through scripture? What are they missing? They deny that Jesus is God. Right. Uh, the person of Christ, when, when God says, I am the Lord, there is no other, they don't see that in the Savior. When God says, I am your Savior, they don't see Christ as the Lord himself as Savior. Uh, they diminish the person of Jesus as true God. And so they, as Jesus said, you know, whoever does not honor the Son just as they honor the Father, divine worship for the Son, the Lord, does not honor the Father. So they are those who have ears but are deaf, are blind but do not see. Uh, they still pray for, if you know someone that's in that church, pray for Jehovah's Witness. They need to be gathered to see Christ, uh, to see the one that is the servant of the Lord, the Lord, the Son of God, Jesus, uh, not just, as they would describe him, an angel 
or the one who attained divinity only for his mission. Just thought I'd point that out because this is where they get their name from. And yet, it's kind of ironic, actually. They get their name from this section, but it's here in this section that God points out, um, what about those who have eyes but are blind? All right, that brings us to chapter 43, verse 14 to 28. Uh, this next section I titled, The Lord Promises a New Deliverance. We, we saw last time uh, that new song, and we're going to look at a new thing that comes up here. So, since we only have um, about seven minutes or so left, I think this will be a good breaking point right here. So we'll, we'll finish up here today. Plus, I went over on Sunday, so I kind of feel like I, I owe you guys seven minutes. So, why don't we close with a prayer about what we studied today. Lord, we thank you for making us your witnesses. You've not only told us to declare who you are, the only God, the Savior God and Redeemer, but you've told us we are now your own. We belong to you and you will never leave us, never forsake us, but will be with us, protect us, as we declare the wonders of what you have done. Help us to be a witness that always finds Christ, your one and only Son, in the pages and prophecies of Scripture, who became our Redeemer who himself is the one that made us his own as he purchased us with his blood. Lord, you called us to be and gathered us with all of your church for your glory. Use us to, as your witnesses, gather still others that will glorify your name with us. Amen.